I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. I taped 14 conversations with some old friends and new friends all over New York during two recent trips there. The first episode, Tom Colicchio Heats Up Leftovers, which were recorded as Brownstone in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, is available up on the podcast, and I hope you'll listen to it if you haven't already. Next week's episode will be my conversation at Luke's Lobster Rolls in Brooklyn with writer and actor John Glazer. John is a hilarious human and has a great show on True TV called John Glazer Loves Gear. So please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and come back next Tuesday for that episode. Ah, but this week's episode, it's with Carla Hall, and it's one of my favorite episodes we've taped so far. I met Carla during her first season of Top Chef, and she just was radiant and just glowed with a positive energy and uh, charisma and strength and just an amazing human. And then she co-hosted The Chew for years. And every time I run into her, she's just this, there's an aura about her that's just so full of positive goodness. But Carla's changed, and I think she's changed in a way that we all want to change. She's found the connection to her sense of place. And I think a lot of that has come through writing her most recent book, which is Carla Hall's Soul Food, which is part cookbook, part personal memoir and history, and part exploration of what soul food actually means to the African-American experience and overall to the American experience. We taped a conversation over biscuits and eggs at Donna Lewis's Home Sweet Harlem on a really cold winter morning but I highly recommend you New Yorkers and future New York visitors go up and eat some biscuits because Donna Lewis makes some phenomenal, phenomenal biscuits. Thank you, Carla Hall, for sitting down with me. And thank you, Donna Lewis, for feeding us. Here's that conversation. Carla Hall finds soul food. I'm sitting in Harlem in a little tiny, beautiful cafe called Home Sweet Harlem with my friend and an awesome awesome human, um, Carla Hall. Carla, thanks for being here. Hi, Hugh. It's great to be here. It's Who good. knew? We get together in Harlem. I know. It was a cold <laughs> walk up here. Man, the wind was cresting down Amsterdam or up Amsterdam, so it was, it was very chilly. So you've been busy, just came out with a new book, Carla Hall's Soul Food. Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's funny. I think once you do one cookbook, you don't think you'll do another one because that was so hard. I won't do another one. And then I did a second one. And and then now I have this one. And the funny thing about this particular book is that um, I had this mental block about it. And I did, I wanted to do, I wanted to revolutionize soul food, right? And, and it was because when you, you're constantly hearing, oh, soul food is going to kill you. And, and so I had this idea, you know, I think I'm going to do a book on revolutionizing soul food. But the fact that I said that I wanted to do soul food was huge because I spent so much time running away from it. And this book really was about leaning into it. I think it's important to lean into it. You know, I, I think that soul food... Uh, people assume we're talking about is stuff that is def- definitely not that healthy for you on a right. regular basis. But I think that, um, you know, though a lot of Edna Lewis's books had Southern food in the title, mm-hmm. I think Edna's books are soul food. Yeah. Um, but I think that soul food and a reference as a soul food is definitely a black 
perspective on food. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's a really interesting conversation to have. It's like, where, where does the name soul food come from? And I'm not a cultural anthropologist. I'm a fancy dishwasher, but I read a lot about these things. And I've come to this idea that soul food, that, that white people could take a lot of things away from black people. Mm-hmm. And though what they know is Southern food really came here in the pockets of slaves. Absolutely. And was a reflection of Gullah and Geechee cultures from West Africa morphing up into uh, in, uh, from rice country of South Carolina and Georgia and really influencing that and then combined with the spice trade that was coming to the ports of Savannah and Charleston. That created Southern food as we know it. And, um, but it was really food created not in the plantation houses. It was created by the slaves. Right. And so finally to give some sort of credence and, and, and meaningful definition to that is important. But I think at the time, and then in the Jim Crow era of, of the 1900s, the only way that uh, Southern blacks could really claim Southern food was to call it soul food. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but then, you know, we talked earlier before we started taping about what soul food means in Toronto and Detroit and New York and in Harlem mm-hmm. and then down or even in the out South. West. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the best soul food, I think in Atlanta is a little place called Busy Bee Cafe and Busy Bee is on Martin Luther King in, in South Atlanta. And it is a definitively powerhouse of black Atlanta. And you go in there and, um, you know, Killer Mike from Run the Jewels is there and a bunch of politicians, a bunch of police officers. And and you go in and eat chitlins and fried chicken and greens. And, you know, it, none of that food in, in uh, you know, unless you're eating it to a, to a fault, is not unhealthy. <laughs> Everything in moderation mm-hmm. to coin Julia Child. I'm trying to think of... Uh, other soul food cooks who are really interest, you know, interesting to me in reading about them. You know, in thinking about soul food and definitive texts on soul food, uh, you know, Vertima Grosner wrote such amazing books and such short recipes on the purity of Southern food. Uh, Edna Lewis wrote about blackberries uh, and, you know, just and really herbs. simple I mean, and fresh herbs. Yes. And, and yeah, I mean, I find Edna Lewis's books more uh, akin to, um, you know, uh, a young Jacques Pepin mm-hmm. than anything I see often in Southern food. This is no Miss Dull, um, you know, her definitive book in the sort of late 1800s on Southern food. Mm-hmm. Um which were really, you know, terse, weird recipes on, you know, how to cleanse your soul of everything and drink <laughs> lye straight out of the bottle to ail a cold or something. Um, but these were just – and vibration cooking is Vertime's really big treatise. That's a beautiful book. And it just, you know, it's just one of those books that has these short, snappy recipes. They're almost poetic in mm-hmm. style. And they don't have amounts. They just have an idea. The idea of that. And I think that when you think about what cooking is about and what soul food cooking is about and um, and the way that my grandmother cooked and you are just feeling it in, in the moment, it's, it's all in the name, isn't it? Vibration cooking. It you know, is. And coming from you. Soul food and vibration cooking. And, you know, I think in the in this day and age of food, in transparency of fine dining and all this stuff, what we search for is the restaurants 
with a soul, yes, with authenticity and zeal and excitement behind what they're doing, and that's always been a necessary of soul food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you can't make soul food without being happy without, about it, and right. it's it's meant to be a place, um, a true restaurant, which is a place of respite and relaxation and of nourishment. Yes. And that's what soul food really mm-hmm. has meant to me. And so in the South where I, I mean, I live in Athens, Georgia, and the, you know, the preponderance of meat and threes uh, yeah. are the true soul food meccas. Um, and they're, it's, it's just such a calming and regular way to eat that's so comforting and, and familial. And- but I think it's that... It's that feeling of what I call that do drop in mentality, that hospitality where you, no matter where you're from, we're going to take care of you. When you're here, we're going to love you up. We're going to let you sit as long as you want, and we've got you. And just like your grandmother would do. And it's, it's all about, like you said, nurturing. I mean, if you go to a southern, good southern restaurant and have a chicken stew over rice with some hot vinegar on it and have a glass of half and half tea. Yeah, you have to say half and half. See, somebody's thinking, oh, wait, half and half. No, not not the the dairy creamer. I mean, half sweet. because You order a tea in the south, and so automatically saccharine sweet is going to peel off layers of your teeth. Yeah, Um, It's good. Probably not good for you. So half and half is much healthier. Mm -hmm. But you dig into that nourishing stew and mix it with the amazingly important crop of the south, which was rice, and splash it with the high acidity of that vinegar. And it just warms you. Yes. Uh, there's a place in Athens, Georgia called Cook. Uh, what's it called? Food for the Soul. And it's a meat and three place. Mm-hmm. I just always love the name, Food for the Soul. It's so nourishing. Yeah. So, But it's funny with Southern food allied to the meaning of soul food. You know, I automatically look at the popularity of somebody like Paula Dean mm-hmm. and, uh, and look towards misappropriation uh, of an entire vernacular of food that I found was um, then paired with a lot of misdeeds that she did. Uh, there weren't misdeeds. They were just, let's, let's be very clear. They were disgusting and uncalled for. You, you know, what's so interesting about this. And I don't think I've ever said this out loud. I mean, knowing oh, we're going to say a lot, we're going to say loud, it out loud. Nobody wanted us to, um, <laughs> you know, knowing Paula Dean. I know and, Paula too. No, no, no. I yep. know, but I'm I'm saying this is this is how messed up it was in my head, because you know her and you want to excuse her, and the more, and this was at a time when I was moving away from my food and my heritage, and I excused her, and I and I got bashed for it. I you know, um, by other African Americans even people like yourself, uh, people, you know, whites who live in the South. And it just isn't in me to hate a person or to not like them or to diss them, and, right? And, and it's not about hating her, but it's looking at what she did. And for me in this moment, I'm like, wow, I excused it. But then the more that I come back to my heritage and the more that I really want to say, wait, wait a minute, Soul food is a cuisine, and it is ours, and we should be proud of it. And 
what it looks like to me sometimes is that soul food is unhealthy and it will kill you and Southern food is great. And so you have that dividing line. And if soul food is the food from black cooks and pretty much Southern food is the food from white people, it's like, wait, ours is good and yours is bad. And I was brainwashed by that because growing up in the South, that's what I heard, even though I love this food, but I was running away from it. It's a love-hate thing. Like, how can I love something that is bad for me and that's going to kill me? It's like being in a toxic relationship. I, I, to- I, I agree in so many ways. I think that that version of Southern food is what I call the pity pat porch uh, mm-hmm. version of Southern food. It's it's an extension of the Jim Crow era, and it it's kind of sickly. It's not, you know, and it's not good for you in a lot of ways. Soul food uh, differentiates in a lot of ways because it really it, it it cannot be appropriated, hence its name. It cannot be appropriated by white Americans. It just cannot be. Um, it, it's not their food, and that, that's a beautiful thing to me. When responding to somebody like Paula with hate was never in my mind. Responding to somebody like Paula with a definition of having a moral compass and being a progressive in this world and paying homage to the people who are des- who created the food that you are replicating is really, really important. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. stop at some point in time in a culinary heritage conversation and to look at those who have been oppressed and say thank you. Mm-hmm. And I'm really sorry for history. That's a really painful conversation for Southerners to have. Mostly white Southerners because they're very, very stubborn when it comes to what they've claimed throughout history, which now when we genuflect is not theirs. Right. And what they feel is due. And I think in this conversation, you can't talk about um, blacks and our food without talking about the American Indian or the Native Indigenous or, you know, the Hispanics. Because and talk about losing your culture. I mean, the native indigenous, we don't even, we're not even talking about their food. And whenever corn comes up, we have to talk about them, but we don't. And, and so in this discovery and part of this, and even talking about genuflecting to a culture, it's to them. You know, when we talk about our cornbread and all of these fried corn dishes and all the corn that we use, because with that African diaspora, there would have been cassava. Mm-hmm. But when they when the Africans got over here, there wasn't cassava um, at that time until it came from, uh, I mean, it was because. I mean, if it was West African, it would have been, you know, uh, sorghum flour and, right. and, and sorghum syrup, which are two different plants or heights of plants. So, yeah, but those are the indigenous crops of West Africa that would have been brought over here. Right. So that hybridization of oppressed cultures within the United States came together and really meshed together to be what we know as American food, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. I recently got new vitamins. Care of has been sending me vitamins because I went on their website, filled in an online quiz, told them the perfect human that I wanted to be, and they're edging me towards that goal. Really, you know, it's early in the year still. We can meet our goals that we set on New Year's Eve, late at night, thinking about life. And one of them is for me to be healthier. But boy, these vitamins have been great. My skin is like resplendent. I have a kick in my step, a pop in my walk. 
I don't know if that's a saying at all. But you just go online and go to Care Of's website, and it's easy and convenient to fill out an online quiz according to the lifestyle you want to edge towards, and you can do it. It's really important that you do it, too, because it's your health. We've got a New Year's offer, 50% off your first month of personalized Care Of vitamins. Go to TakeCareOf.com and enter a promo code HUGH50, Hugh50. I have this uh, interesting story. After all the Paula Dean stuff rolled out and really Paula fell from a fair bit of grace, um, Michael Twitty, uh, who was then really known for a blog he was writing on Af- uh, Afro-culinary culture called The Afro-Culinarian, um, wrote a very beautiful letter to Paula. And as an open letter, very public letter on Twitter, it was linked from Twitter, and it in it said how wrong she was in what she had done in various things and pointed out why it was that, but then invited Paula to come and, and learn about cooking in a situation of a plantation slave setting. Mm-hmm. And Michael was going to do one of his recreations of cooking on the ground over coals, and it was going to be a really interesting experience culturally and to show the significance of what um, black Americans went through during slavery. And so he had an open invite to it. Obviously, she didn't respond. But um, I'm a bit of a potster and like to insert myself into situations. So I quickly <laughs> uh, offered to Michael that I would come down and my oldest daughter, Beatrice, and I went down. And I'll still reframe this. I'm Canadian. And I live in the South. Mm-hmm. I am not from the South. I was not born here. I do not claim this food as my own. I know a lot about it through uh, an outsider's eyes. And I've learned all about a lot about it academically. And it's the food that I, I cherish, but it's not my own. It's different for, than a lot of people's um, claims to it. Um, so Michael welcomed me with open arms and we cooked this dinner. It was really, really amazingly poignant thing. It was also the time he did 23 and me that should the well, DNA. Well, we both did African ancestry. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. but the, he, um, he said he devotes the results of that at this dinner, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the dinner, about where he was from in Ghana and where his family came from. And it was truly heartfelt, but also just being in there and immersed in a culture, um, of watching people tear up over the the honesty of this depiction of history, yes. cooking on the ground in cast iron skillets, literally on the ground, mm-hmm. nestled into flames with stews and meats and greens and dandelion and um, really basic food that was nurtured up from its basic roots to be phenomenal, mm-hmm. um, that literal tears were falling into this food, and that's what made it amazing and nourishing and that's what made it alive uh it was an amazingly beautiful thing in a lot of ways born out of pain and tears and suffering but that is that genuflection and coming to terms with that america needs to do overall and this is not to to my own horde of pride that i went but i was so glad that my then 11 year old daughter was running around helping everyone do everything Mm -hmm. um because that's how we change a generation. Yes, hopefully. yes. So. I, I, I 
haven't done one of those dinners. I would love to do one of those dinners. I went to um, Mozambique and cooked with um, a woman. I actually went there with care, and mm-hmm. it was a uh, a culinary ambassadorship a journey. And it was Spike Mendelson and Kat Cora and Antonia Lafasa, and it was it was really incredible and. And even there was this moment when the, um, and talk about a celebration meal where they are killing a chicken, where they don't have chicken every day. And so the head, I guess the head man in the village sharpened his knife over a rock. And then he had this chicken and he prayed over it and he rubbed its head and he pulled up the feathers on the chicken's neck, and in one swoop, almost like butter, he killed the chicken. And the chick, it was just so beautiful the way that it was done, contrary to the day before when we saw someone kill a chicken. That chicken was screaming and everything. I'm like, oh my God, oh, what chicken? <laughs> you know, and, and the knife wasn't sharp. And to see the contrast of when you have reverence and respect for what you're eating and you're so grateful and and the kill is just as important as the feast, it was just a beautiful thing. And, And I think they were just honoring this and we made this stew and we're all sitting around it and everybody's so excited. And And what was also not lost on me was how some of these same cooking techniques of taking the garlic and mashing it in with the salt and a mortal and pestle and then putting it in there. And, and, and then the woman was making coconut milk and she was sitting on this little stool that had a sharp blade that almost looked like a fan and they had cracked the coconut and she is scraping all yeah. of the meat out of this coconut and then putting it into water and wringing it out to get the coconut milk and then putting that in the stew and and then and then that the the remainder of the coconut went to the chickens you know it was it was just a beautiful thing and everything had purpose and even though they were cu- cooking on this ground it was so clean mm-hmm. and so beautifully done and it was that, and that's what that's what I see when you think about Michael Twitty having these reenactments. Yeah, and that's but that uh, that, that is a sense of uh, in a non-dollar system the reverence for real food. Yes, and unfortunately, we've economized food in this country to the point that you know a, a whole chicken at Kroger costs two dollars and twenty cents. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if that's reverence anymore, but hopefully we're changing. I think that America is changing a little we're bit. We're changing. I think also when somebody says, oh, I don't want to go out and kill a chicken. I'm like, are you vegetarian? And like, no. Well, you should not be saying that. If you can't go out and actually be okay with killing your food. Yeah, but Carlo, the subway in New York would be so weird if everybody had to buy live chickens. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm saying you 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 have to be okay with somebody doing it. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. you may not be able to oh, do so it. So you're not re- implying that they should do no, it. No, no, no. But I'm oh, saying that I you am. should be. I think they should have to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, honestly, if they did, we would eat less meat. Yeah. We would, it would, I mean, water would find its own level in terms of how much we consume. Look, we, uh, it, it, eating less meat in the South was a necessity. Figuring out how to cook 
collard greens mm -hmm. and grits as nourishment and filling almost was out of necessity. The fact that you cured meat and you took an ounce of it to make collard greens um, to add smoky meat substitute flavor almost to everything, mm -hmm. that was born out of necessity. That's because proteins were expensive. Right. And I, and I also think that when you are given scraps and you have to make food stretch, that that's the thing that when you look at soul food, it has more seasoning. So you have to work a little harder to make that food taste good. And, and I, I make this analogy when people ask me the difference between soul and Southern foods. Um, so it's the difference between a hymn and a Negro spiritual. I mean, same song, but you know that Negro Spiritual is going to have a little something on it. It's going to have notes that aren't on the page. It's going to dig deep and come from a place of pain that's going to carry you melodically to another place versus just an intellectual exercise of singing this hymn. And, um, and that is real. Yeah. Soul food is the heart. Yeah, it's it's very different. It's really interesting. So I'm into teaching kids how to cook mm -hmm. and trying to realize how we atomize technique out of recipes and to give people lifelong sort of skills that they can use to empower themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you take three of those skill sets – for example, poaching an egg and making a vinaigrette and properly roasting a chicken. Say those are three just yes. attributes that if everybody knew life is going to be better for them. Mm -hmm. What are your three? What do kids need to learn that help them? when they get? To, what do they need to learn at the ages of 11, 12, and 13 that will, when they get to 19, 20, 21, the most difficult years of your life because you're trying to figure out your direction and where you're going and how you're going to pay the bills and perhaps in, in true America, perhaps you have two kids already and you're a single mother and you live with your mother. Yeah. And, and that's the honesty of our society. Mm -hmm. So how do you make that person's life, how do you empower it enough where they can say three magic words? I got this. Yeah. Um, I told my stepson Noah when he was getting ready to um, – move out on his own. He was already in college. And, and, I, and I talked to him a little bit about these things when he was in high school, but I don't think it really took effect until he was actually moving into his own apartment after college. But I said, you have to know how to roast a chicken. You know, um, knowing how to roast vegetables, where you can take almost any vegetable, toss them in oil, put them on a sheet pan into a hot oven, even if you don't know what the vegetable is, you can, you can pretty much get by. And it's also a way to try things that you've never tried before, for the most part. Um, and scrambling eggs. I can't tell you how many eggs I eat myself when I come home. And it I just want... It takes three minutes. Yes. And eggs are not expensive. And Correct. It, they're, eggs are protein for, the, for everyone, regardless of how much you make in this world. But I tell you, it's one of my pet peeves about perfectly scrambled eggs because when I go to a restaurant and I'm like, I just want a softly scrambled egg and I never get it. I get pellets. And so even people who are cooks 
they think that it's so simple that they that they know how to do it. It's like the humble cookie. People people don't do good cookies because they think they overlook the technique of doing the thing. And they want to get to the quote unquote hard stuff or fancy stuff. Uh, right. right. But but they're missing the point that great recipes are born out of a couple of techniques that are honed in perfect. Right. And so we shouldn't be teaching recipes. We need to be mm-hmm. teaching techniques mm-hmm. more and more. Mm-hmm. We write, you, you and I both write cookbooks. That's great. We can do recipes, but it's implied that people understand the technique. Correct. But that's why those old cookbooks, when you talk about Verdame and even Edna Lewis, that's why on these, in these old cookbooks, they could be short because people knew the techniques because they cooked. Now, you know, you have to have two pages for a recipe. <laughs> you know, you have four ingredients and you have a page and a half of the steps. Because we shed that knowledge in, yes. a, in a number of generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I always say in cooking demos that, you know, you didn't, Nobody made jam with their mother. You made jam with your grandmother. And suddenly your mother bought Smuckers and right. we all forgot how to make jam. Mm-hmm. And that was a, you know, it's a simple step of convenience lifestyle and living, but it is a massive change mm-hmm. in society when it comes to everything yes. and, and how we feed ourselves. Even the work that um, Jessica Harris has done mm-hmm. and... Um, Tony Tipton Martin, Mm -hmm. all of these people. I mean, Tanya Holland way out west, and um, I, I feel as though it should be. I don't know. That what happens sometimes in the food world is all this tokenism, Mm -hmm. and it's like they can only handle one person of color at a time. Right. (laughs) It's not that anymore. Which yeah, is right. good. And it's I like mean, coming in a, as a posse. Yeah, there is a, you know, which is a what, sizable amount of force now uh-huh. that changes the whole scenario. Yes. And hopefully makes really lasting impact. And I think it is. I mean, I think the perception of it's changing ever so slowly, but as perceptions change, the people in the far reaches are putting up arguments that are silly and grosser and grosser every day as to why it shouldn't change shouldn't happen. But Mm-hmm. Interesting times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they are. And I I don't think that you can keep people and their culture down. No. Because I, I, no. And what has been really, um, I feel, a, a, a big catalyst for this is the African American Museum. And when you go there and you see all that you should be proud of and... Um, so it's, it's just, I mean, it's incredible. I, I've been through the museum six times and every time I see something new and, you know, you find yourself in tears because there's just so much. And not just for African-Americans, but everybody, because everybody is reverencing other people's, other people's cultures, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And the more that you can find that you love about your own, the more that you can respect someone else's. But when you have found that what you are loving and you have taken on as your own isn't yours, then you tend to be in this really weird place of wanting to cover things up and and not have the big reveal of other cultures' contributions. 
Yeah, I think people need to be clear about where their food comes from, where their uh-huh. ideas come from, and whether there's no ownership of all this. No. But there is a there's a there's an honesty and a duty to point out where they, the the genius of an idea came from. Right. podcast world is growing bigger and bigger every day, and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future phases as well. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya's got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's tip jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and we're adding cool new features every day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya, that's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A, and don't forget to follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot once you're there. I think uh, Donna's going to bring out some food for us to snack. That would be amazing. I'm hungry. Have you been here before? No, I've never been here before. That's great. And then my friend Alexander Smalls lives near here. He yeah. had Minton's and Beulah's Cafe back in the day and uh, where J.J. Johnson yeah. worked. We Oops. went to J.J.'s new place the other day. Yeah. Uh, which is called the Henry in the Life Hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the food's great. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I think he's he's showing a true pathway to what, he, what he's really wanted to do, which mm-hmm. was show... West African. Uh, a little bit of Asian. Yeah, mixed. and the Asian, mm-hmm. really mixing it up. Mm-hmm. But really at the core, there's West African flavors going on a lot yes. of things, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting to me. So, Well, what I think when you think about the Caribbean and some of that, um, those Asian flavors, the curries and everything, you know, because of the spice root, it makes sense. And you're pulling all of that out and the coconut milk and yes. Yeah, my my family on my father's side, uh, my dad was born in Havana, but they were Canadians. But they had been living, the family had been living there for over 100 years. Donna is bringing in Donna food. Donna Lewis, who was the owner and chef of Home Sweet Harlem, is bringing us wonderfully beautiful biscuits. And fried apples. Soft eggs and bacon and turkey bacon and fried apples. Stewed, stewed, fried, hybridized, fried and stewed. Thank you, Donna. This is wonderful. Carla just used the international symbol of needing a fork. Yes, and I'm also used to eating and talking. I don't know how that happens on in voice. This is a wonderful thing. We don't care. Mm. So is the book... Do you, do, you, do you think the book's a cookbook or is it enough narrative to be more? From what I saw, it's got It is narrative enough narrative to, to, to be, to be more. more. Um, and when I went through the South, uh, when I talked about that mental block and I, I just had to sort of come back and go through the South as if I was an observer – and it changed my perspective totally. I spoke to farmers. I talked to young cooks. I went to certain restaurants. I um, 
I went to churches, popped into hair salons, you know, because it, what I know is that our food is more than just um, going to a restaurant and experiencing the restaurant. It's a culture. I think the restaurant's the tip of the iceberg. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot happening in home kitchen churches yes, and potlucks. Oh. And <laughs> oh. The hierarchy yeah. at um, churches. That's a good biscuit, Donna. Yes. Really good biscuit. It's a biscuit. It's good. So good. And I don't say that much about biscuits. Oh, I am so picky about Sorry. my biscuits. Do you know I actually make strange, I make biscuits with strangers here in New York because so often. Biscuits pe- with strangers. That I, should be your podcast. It's like hashtag biscuit time <laughs> <laughs> because so often people will send me to a place, oh, they have really good biscuits. And as a Southerner, that is a draw. I will go there. But usually it's not true. It's not good. And I, I say to people, either you have to know how to make a good biscuit or you need to know how to recognize one. Mm-hmm. And or both. That's helpful, too. It, it's, it's helpful if they're both. But a lot of times um, I just want to, um, I just want to you know, connect with people and just say, okay, let me change the culture of what you all think a good biscuit is up here in the north. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact... As a Southerner, I talked to strangers, and when I moved into my apartment building, I pretended like I needed things like cream or milk. (laughs) As an excuse to knock on the neighbor's door? I did. (laughs) (laughs) Usually in New York, that means uh, people think you're crazy. But, yeah, nobody really waves and talks to each other as random strangers here. But, you know, living in the South, is like you're walking on the street. Hey, hello. Exactly. You do that here, and you, you spend a little time at a hospital. Yeah, but I, I and then I've had I've had dinners in my apartment building, you know, progressive dinners with my neighbors, and um, I I just like talking to strangers. As a matter of fact, recently, I just decided to just carry one of my cookbooks in my bag, and I said I'm going to give it to a random person. I don't when I leave, I have no idea who that person is going to be. That's great. And recently, it was. This woman named De, De Genobu Diallo, and she is from Mali, and we got to talking, and she said that she had been out of work for four months, and she said, I love your show, and she said, I love to cook, but I can't eat my, the same foods that I used to eat because, you know, I have some, she has some digestive issues, and so I said, well, I want to give you my cookbook because it has a lot of wonderful vegetables in there. And then we were bonding over this recipe called klaklo, which is really, really ripe plantains that are almost black, and they're mashed, and then you mix them with flour. Well, I didn't know what klaklo was, but it was from talking to another stranger who happened to be my cab driver. And instead of saying, how are you? I said, what is something that you miss from home? Because I noticed he had an accent and he was from Ghana. We started talking about kiliwili, which is plantains mixed with tomatoes and ginger. And then he says, oh, but do you know klaklo? And I was like, no. So is klaklo cooked after it's mixed with the flour? It is, is it cooked. It's like or? a Johnny cake. Okay. And so they make it and they you make this patty. And then you eat it with spicy food, so you could have it almost as a dessert and as a bread. And she was like, 
oh, I love that. And they call it something else. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm like, I have the recipe. Don't judge me. That's awesome. Because I want you to know that I got it from the guy from Ghana. Yeah. <laughs> and I made up my recipe, but I added a little more. Because the the thing that I do know is having an American palate, I wanted something lighter. So right. I did add eggs and a little more and a little leavening so that it was a little lighter like a giant But cake. I found that really interesting in the um, the sort of proprietariness of certain Southern and soul foods that you're not allowed to change them. Right. It's like you're always allowed to change of stuff. Of course. Nobody's in your kitchen. Cook the way you want. <laughs> yes. Make it taste like the food you want to eat. But the exactly. idea of it and the purity of the, the ancestral history of a recipe, it's always there. Whether you redo it and modernize it or not, the gestation mm-hmm. of it and how it appears in your head and the idea behind it was there. That's mm-hmm. the historical truth. Yes. So, uh, you know, look, we just do, we eat entirely differently than we did in 1972. And we eat right. entirely differently than people did in 1932. So we have to understand that. There's progress mm-hmm. in food. There's ebbs and flows of likes and dislikes and how hearty we want our food. Um, we're also not working all in factories, burning 5,000 calories a day. We're living sedentary lives. A lot of us sitting down nine to five, writing on computers. Mm -hmm. You don't need that many calories. There's no need to eat a 20 pound steak every day or whatever it is, 20 ounce steak. So food has definitely changed in that way. And uh, let nobody tell you that you can't modernize chicken and dumplings. You can do whatever you want. That's right. Here, here. Yeah. Well, Carla Hall, this has been a delight to sit down and chat. It's been so great. Yeah. We, Thank you. We bump into each other, but we always have this affinity. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, breaking bread like this with Donna's wonderful food in this wonderful restaurant in beautiful Harlem uh, on a cold day in New York is a, is a good thing. We it's like it. It's definitely a good thing. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location in Harlem, New York. Scott Porch produces the show for Himalaya Media with field recordings by Brian Blum, sound design by Alex Ramsey, and editing by Brendan Lynch-Salmon and Jason Smith. Please follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on your podcast app and come back on Tuesdays for new episodes. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram if you want to find me at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Be swell.